So the gathering that uh, that Birgit was speaking about uh, was one. Uh, it was the third Gethsemane encounter. It was held at. Uh, at Try to speak a little louder. It's the third Gethsemane encounter uh, at a place called Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky. Although it was still spring when I was there, it was already hot, very hot and humid. Um, some of you might be familiar with Gethsemane Abbey uh, in its connection to the name Thomas Merton. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Thomas Merton or not, but he's a, a Christian contemplative monk um, who passed away the year that I was born. Really? Yes, 40 years ago. And uh, a bit more than 40 years ago in Thailand for an interreligious uh, interreligious dialogue in Thailand. So he passed away in Bangkok. Um, Thailand is a place where I've also been, also to Bangkok. Um, and... Um, I think Thomas Merton is one of my, uh, my my heroes from my younger life. So I was very happy to be invited uh, to go there uh, to his monastery for something that was hosted by monastic interreligious dialogue. And interreligious dialogue is a little bit different than interfaith because interreligious dialogue is between monastics of different traditions. Mm-hmm although there were a whole number of people there uh, observing and participating who weren't monastics, but uh, the dialogue was between uh, Christian monastics, Benedictine, Trappist, and Cistercian, uh, and Buddhist monastics. This was the third such encounter, and this particular encounter was dedicated to monasticism and the environment. So, when I was first invited to this, I was, uh, hmm. I was just very happy to hear about it. Uh, so happy that there would be such a thing. And uh, I think I felt like if there was anything that I could do in my monastic life um, to, uh, uh, to be helpful, to contribute um, to, oh, to, to our environmental situation, uh, that I would like to do that. And so when the invitation came, I felt very, uh, very happy and, and enthusiastic about it. But then I saw what I was invited to speak about. It's like maybe the last thing that, uh, maybe the, the last subject <laughs> that, that I, I thought I would have wanted to speak about at such a gathering. Um, both Buddhists and Christian monastics were asked to consider... Uh, the teachings of their particular faith and to think if there was any way that that particular teaching or doctrine might have been interpreted, taught, practiced, or manifest in a way, in any way, that would have been harmful for our environment and for one another. So that was one of the tasks of our gathering, was to look into that uh, very honestly and openly, and to own that, and then to see also in, in that teaching whether there, were, whether there was any doctrine that could actually be, wh- whether that teaching could be seen otherwise. Like for example, whether dominion of the earth could be seen as stewardship, even wise stewardship of the earth whether that's that's valid in the teaching or not. Uh, I've given a Christian example, yes, that we talked about, but what would be the Buddhist example? And uh, and then to look at what teaching that's there that, that seems to our eyes now in this situation that seems to be wholesome, positive, progressive, healthy, uh, beneficial, and to make a commitment together to, to really acknowledge uh, those ideas and those teachings and those practices that may have been detrimental to ourselves, one another, and other living beings, and um, uh, to ask forgiveness for that and uh, affirm our, our wish to, to discontinue uh, any, any kind of harmful ways of seeing things, uh, 
or thinking about them, or speaking of them, or acting. Or going around the circle on the Noble Eightfold Path here, you can, or living, or any any of these things, yes. Hmm. And uh, so that was the purpose of our gathering, and what I was charged with was looking into Buddhism and seeing what there might be in the Buddhist teaching that could have been uh, taken taken on in a way that was harmful, that, that might have led us to be uh, act, think or act or behave in ways that were harmful to one another um, or to, to other living beings, to our welfare in, uh, in, our, in our lives. Our incarnation as human beings on this planet. Um, you know, Buddhism looks at, uh, traditionally looks at, at this human incarnation as being kind of in the middle, kind of like Middle Earth, the middle ground, and uh, uh, between, you know, having having the very light and the very dark, and, uh, but but really being in the middle. So, uh, it, under under heaven, above hell, this this kind of thing, uh, and that that middle ground is really very ideal for enlightenment. We might think that birth as a heavenly being would be better. According to the Buddhist teaching, it's far more difficult for heavenly beings to, to get enlightened uh, because of enjoying their, their lovely heavenly status. And then the time frame spreads out to practically eternity, not really, but for a very long time. And, and, uh, and you know, more hellish incarnations, just so much suffering. It's very, very hard to get your mind out of that. And uh, that that uh, earthly, earthly incarnation is supposed to be one of the best thing for that in classical Buddhist teaching. Uh, not, not because we think it's so, so perfect and so ideal. <laughs> Sometimes we don't. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's kind of turning around your, your mindset. Actually, seeing whether, uh, whether, whether what we have, what our situation is, whether uh, it can be helpful and useful and even ideal for enlightenment or, or not. Yes. Mm. Uh, anyhow, so I was charged with looking at the Buddhist teaching in this regard. I don't know if any of you have heard of Insight Forum. So Insight Meditation Center has something, uh, an online thing called Insight Announce and another one called Insight Forum. So. I thought, this is really rough. I don't know anything in the Buddhist teaching that's bad for the environment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm supposed to go talking in front of all these, all these great and eminent people about this subject, and, and I really do want to go, but can I take this charge? Because Can, can I accept? Because I have no idea what I'm going to say about this. And um, so I tried, to, uh, I tried to give it some deeper consideration, and I tried to ask others. And uh, I asked a number of monastics that I knew around the world. I took a kind of a, an e-poll amongst, <laughs> amongst monastics that I know and asked them what they thought about that. And I uh, got back some very interesting answers. And I put the question out to Insight Forum, uh, which is on, on the internet here in this area. I got back some very, very interesting answers from that. And I'm going to share with you very briefly uh, what what these things were, and uh, maybe maybe you'll have some other ideas too. I can. Um, the, the proceedings from the third Gethsemane encounter are supposed to be published in a book in 2010, a mainstream mainstream publication. So I still have a chance left to edit <laughs> what I've written. So if I've missed something here and you've thought of it, please do let me know. I'd be very happy to know about it. And uh, if it seems good to, um, to add that in. Um, from Insight Forum, the main thing that I heard back was about apathy. As kind of an idea that Buddhists and maybe Buddhist monastics all the more so, like withdrawing from the world, you know, even otherworldly, and um, you're not not caring about about what's going on, and just you know non-attachment meaning detachment, and kind of just let go of everything, and you know, samsara means the world is going to hell, and just 
get out to, to Nirvana, to Nirvana as quickly as quickly as possible, and you know, isn't all existence suffering anyway? And um, you know, this this kind of thing, in the sense of there being uh, this kind of a uh, kind of negativity or kind of uh, apathy. It's just just detaching, withdrawing, letting go of everything, and you know, a lot of mucking around going on. But I'm just going to come come out of it, not not to be an active an active part of changing anything that's harmful or, or difficult. Yeah? So that was the the most popular response that I got back, and people people had the thought that that Buddhist monastics would be all the more so compared to Buddhist lay people, even even more withdrawn or something. So that idea was there. From the monastics I got back a whole different realm of ideas. (laughs) Whole whole different whole different thing. So this is the interesting thing about this kind of uh, this kind of gathering, this kind of exercise, is opening up the question and then seeing, you know, what what it looks like from the inside and what others are seeing from the outside and what they think also, right? So this is, uh, I think, it's one of the things that's very useful about it. Um, So from the inside, we talked about, oh, the old walking practice. For 2,000 years, Buddhist monastics didn't use vehicles. Why are we now? Getting on airplanes, talking about that, Going, flying, th- those who are popular teachers, kind of flying around the world to lead retreats and, and carbon imprint and, and um, many kinds of, actually the monastics came up with lots of practical stuff, these kind of details about the way that we're living our lives and questioning whether the things that we're doing might be harmful in any way or not. And because we wear the robes, then people look and this is the you know, other than other than a statue or an image of, of the Buddha, this is something that connects back to the way that the Buddha himself lived, yes? And so there are those people who then look at what the monastics are doing and how they're living and take that as a kind of example of the Buddha's wisdom, right? So to be able to identify a, a, a lay person who's practicing, or non other than monastic, who's practicing a practicing the Buddha's teaching, there would be other other things that might show that, if it just showed by example. Like maybe maybe your demeanor or uh, like the you know, the goodness or kindness of your speech or having a you know, like a sense of steadiness and equanimity or you know, deeper perspective on things or something. Yes, but the robes are the the image is right right out there. So, what is it to see see monastics, you know, in cars, on airplanes, and this kind of whole whole list of things? And how about when people offer non-environmentally friendly products to the monastery and you use them, and questioning that kind of thing? And, and you know, there's the ethic of accepting everything without discrimination, and yet, if that's harmful. Are we supposed to accept it or not? So looking at questions like that. Yeah? So there are a whole list of things. Like we're using technologies that we know are harmful. Right? Like when I even when I flush the toilet or turn on the light switch. So back from the monastics, I got this whole list of these kinds of very, very, very practical things and asking the question of how how appropriate is it for us to be to be using these things that if we look into them more deeply we understand in the chain of cause and effect and the chain of causes and conditions uh, that, that these things have their harmful aspect yes and weighing harm and benefit so the monastics were the the people non-monastics or lay people whichever word you, you prefer uh, it got back actually this kind of very deep, uh, deep philosophical and doctrinal uh, idea, and related to related to a sense of like the the mood or the heart 
of the practice and, and what kind of attitude there is. And of course that informs everything. And back from the monastics, we got back all these practical, this whole long list of, of practical details, yes? And questioning, <coughs> questioning those things in our behavior. Yeah? So I found that very interesting. Um, so I gave a little report on those things. And for the apathy part, um, mm, we went into underlying attitudes, looking at the Four Noble Truths. Lots of people have heard of the First Noble Truth, being suffering. Sometimes it's spelled out in ways that actually the Buddha never spelled it out, like all existence is suffering or something like that. Uh, because I've done a good bit of study of the, uh, of, of the oldest known teachings that we have from the Buddha and, uh, and, and in their older languages, then, then I can say surely about that. I've read it in English in one way and I've never seen it like that in the Pali text. Uh, but in, in some sense it's true. If we look at the word dukkha, then uh, it literally means a kind of instability. It's like wobbling. Yeah. comes from the, the language of the car makers of that time. The carts. And means that the wheel, wheel is unbalanced. The wheel's wobbling. So there's stress, and it doesn't, doesn't just go smooth and true. It pulls off to the left or pulls off to the right, and then there's stress, there's tension. <coughs> and yes, it, it can be. It's a kind of, a, a kind of suffering, yeah? because of the sense of imbalance. But the, the four, four noble truths, there are four of them after all, right? So it's not like just suffering ends there, and that's done with, that's done with it. Yeah. The next one is looking at cause, there being causes of suffering. It doesn't just say, you know, that suffering, and that's the be-all and end-all. Yeah? So Ajahn Brahm, who's uh, become a very popular teacher now, uh, I think in, especially in Australia and, and internationally, he said in his teaching now he's turning the, turned the Four Noble Truths upside down. You first have to go, <laughs> actually first have to go to number three and, and talk about the, the truth of the end of suffering first. Right? <laughs> um, because otherwise people often remember number one and don't remember the part about the cause or the ending or the path path to the ending somehow, but the, it's like the number one really, really stands out, uh, which I think is very useful. It's like you just look at, just look at what the issue is head on. If there's no suffering, then why do we need to do this anyway? Yeah? Right? So it's looking at, looking at the reason, and then the reason that's underlying the reason, right, right straight head on, without any avoidance, without any denial, without any whitewashing, or, or, or rose-colored glasses or anything else, yes? But uh, number three, about end of suffering, and not that you have to die to get there. <laughs> Although the causes of suffering do have to die, but that means causes of suffering doesn't mean... You know, what? <laughs> right. Yes, yes. It, it's like the thing about renunciation. Uh, a few times I've given talks on renunciation and I will be coming up uh, talking about renunciation at Insight Meditation South Bay and this is one of also one of the big scary words and uh, you think about people have the idea that renunciation means renunciation of, of everything that's good and beautiful and wonderful in your life <laughs> which sounds very dreary and awful and according to the, what, what the Buddha taught what, what is to be renounced, do you know? Causes of suffering, yes. <laughs> right? Not causes of happiness. <laughs> renunciation means renunciation of causes of, causes of happiness, well-being, and uh, the goodness in our life, and that kind of thing. But yes, causes of suffering. Uh, so it's really, uh, it, it's, it's similar in that regard. 
So uh, we talked a little bit about uh, about that apathy and uh, about the idea ideas about this world as as being a place of strife and suffering and maybe uh, also within within Christian tradition some idea of it being inherently fallen, inherently flawed, uh, and and that the the the, the wonderful part really is to come after death. I'm not saying that this is correct Christian doctrine. I'm not, not trying to say that, but just that those ideas are, are around. You know? uh, and and there, there are people who think so and feel so and then, and then act based on those thoughts. Um, so we, we just recognize those, those thoughts, those ideas are there. And those ideas are, are informing people and they're around enough that they have a kind of a, I don't know if ethos is the right word, but like that the mood, that mood is around in our human world and in our society. That, that sense has gotten out there, whether it's rightly that teaching or not. And the question, is that really rightly the Buddha's teaching? And if that leads people to apathy, if that leads them to be apathetic towards what's in their own welfare and well-being, or towards ceasing apathy towards ceasing to do things that are harmful to themselves and others and other living beings or apathy towards doing things that are helpful beneficial now is is this teaching really really encouraging that kind of apathy so we had a bit of time uh, looking at the, the eightfold path and going to the fourth noble truth looking at, at the truth of the path and uh, going to what the Buddha described if we think about the wheel again. And um, um, there are the spokes. Maybe you all know those spokes. But then mindfulness also was placed right at the hub. The mindfulness and clear comprehension right in the center of the wheel, like the, the axle, where the axle goes. The Buddha also spoke about right effort as being the rim. Okay, so mindfulness being and clear comprehension being right in the center, and uh, and the right effort being what the wheel turns on. Every every single part of it then is connected to mindfulness, and every single part of it is connected to effort, to right to right effort, including our view, including our mental states, our thoughts and intentions, including our speech, including our actions. All of that, when that's done with mindfulness. When there's choice and there's effort. So it turns, turns on the right effort. And the very definition of right effort is to look with mindfulness and see is it something helpful or is it something harmful? Did that work well or not? And for the things, for the things that, uh, like in monastic life, we were taught to do this review throughout the day, but every day at the end of the day, to look back over the day and, and say what what worked well and what didn't. Yeah? Really to look at that. It's a kind of analysis. And if it didn't work well, if, if it was a cause of suffering, yes, to make the affirmation to reduce and discontinue it. And if it did, then to make the affirmation to continue and to develop it. If it's something to be continued, then to continue it. If it could be developed further, then to develop it further. And also to make the affirmation for the things that we haven't seen yet. That is, for things that are harmful for ourselves or for others that we haven't seen yet. Also, to, to wish or to make the affirmation to see them and, and, and make our intent. When we see, when we know something that's harmful, that's contributing to harm, for the short term or for the long term, not just the short term, we all, all know that Buddhist teaching is very much grounded in the present, but that's the only time that we live. All of the practice happens in the present, and yet the part about wisdom and about skillfulness it very much extends, doesn't it? Yes. So if we see a pothole coming up in the road ahead of us, 
not like we're supposed to just focus, 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 and then run into it. We can do that. <laughs> we can do that. But, but the analogy of this type of mindfulness was um, like this. This is similar to our alms bowl, uh, to holding our alms bowl, which is, is larger, and uh, holding a bowl full of oil and then, then walking with that. And to do that, you have to be very, very mindful in the present so as not to spill it. And also you have to, it's like your mind has to go a bit back and forth, yeah? Because you, you look where you're walking. If you don't, really don't want to spill, then you've got to be sure you're not gonna run into a door or some other person or step off the edge of the road you're walking on or that kind of thing, right? So it requires not, not only being very present and mindful with, with what you have right here, but then also, also taking a look. And that means our, our longer-term welfare and happiness. No? So that, that's very much the way, the way that this is laid out. So right effort, then, we're exactly, by its very definition, supposed to be looking at these things. And that's just fundamental related to four noble truths in their number four, eightfold path, right effort. Yes? I found a lot of the people who were there, many of my fellows then in monastic interreligious dialogue, all of them felt that they had studied Buddhism at least four noble truths in eightfold path, right? You know, basics, at least, at least that before even entering into it. But somehow, now this kind of basic definition of, of right effort and what that what that means. So it's about mental things and physical things, right? About our body and mind. It's about ourselves also related to others, all of our relationships, not only other human beings, but all other living beings. And everything that has effect on our lives and on others' lives, yes? So suddenly it gets very broad and very deep and like, what's not involved in that? Yeah, it's hard to find anything that's not involved in that, you know? If you play it out mentally, suddenly you have multiple universes and <laughs> everything, everything is connected, yeah? Hmm. And uh, playing out over, over time. So, very, very basically in this path, the first thing that we're supposed to work with uh, in really classical teaching is, is clarifying our intention, purifying our intention. The Buddha said that karma is intention. Yeah? And so that's the very, like, very basic and fundamental thing. And we look at these questions, and people say well, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> and, these, and you know, what about? Okay, so you have this very, very nice intention, but you're doing something that's you know, unskillful. And does does that? Is there any? Is there any scope for that? Yeah, very much so. Certainly, right? For wisdom, for skill. It, it it's very much. For the three trainings in, in this practice of um, like moral virtue, integrity, and meditation, concentration, and wisdom, right? So wisdom is very much it's um, exactly it's one of the one of the main pillars. So seeing the uh, is it seeing seeing cause and effect. And seeing how it goes step by step over time, it's, uh, it's fundamental in the whole thing. Yeah? So, and what is there that doesn't matter? What what is not involved? I think is there any is there any thought that doesn't matter? Any word, any action, does the way we live our lives, does it, does it really matter or not? I know I've talked to lots of people who say that they feel that it doesn't. The whole thing is too big and um, 
the, the flow of many people together is very strong. Sometimes it can seem like it doesn't matter, like it doesn't make much of a difference. But when we start looking at it really uh, with, with care, we see that uh, even, even the very small things sometimes can make a really tremendous difference, yes? Even just one moment can be, uh, really, it's like changing the entire world. So, I wanted to, uh, to give you just a little bit of something uh, from the Buddhist teaching from our monastic discipline, which uh, uh, in our particular Buddhist tradition, uh, that the monastic discipline, uh, Vinaya, is very important in our monastic lives. And, and we use the old, like original Buddhist monastic discipline, not entirely unadapted, but not, not adapted so very much. And some people say, you know, how can that be relevant from 2,500 years ago? We normally don't say that about the Dharma these days, but monastic discipline now. Um, and there are others who say that they find, uh, they find wisdom in there that seems to be uh, very, very practical and very relevant, even in, uh, even in the small details like very small and mundane things in monastic life, like um, care for putting out our waste. We're not supposed to carelessly put out our waste in the earth, in the water, on the green, I think the air should be included in the, like all of the elements. Yes. Hmm. Uh, there's one small point uh, in the monastic discipline that I find particularly profound, and that has to do with our human bodily waste. It also extends really to everything. One of our monastic precepts says that when we go to use the restroom, that when we leave it, it should be as clean more cleaner than when we entered. This is just for, no, we're getting down to the very, it seems like people would say like the bottom of the barrel in monastic discipline, yes? We're talking about even etiquette for going to the restroom and this kind of thing. I think it's still relevant. <laughs> we still have that. Um, hmm. So if we look at then the, the explication of it, then it says, that's, that's for going to the restroom, and that's supposed to be for our own training and also related to other people so that they wouldn't see, like if they go into a restroom after a Buddhist monastic has been there and then they find the restroom a mess, they think, huh, how can that be right? In these robes, dressed up like the Buddha or something, the restroom looks like this. <laughs> um... So that, that's one consideration, but uh, it also mentions then not only for the restroom, but also for our lodgings, not only for our, not only for our monastic lodgings, but also if we're a guest in someone else's house, if they invite us, we're also supposed to consider that, and not only for the lodgings, but also for going into a village or going into a town, anything. And the list kind of goes on for anything that we possibly might touch or use anywhere in the monastery or outside of the monastery. Applying that same, that same principle, yeah? Suddenly it starts to get really big. It's like as clean or cleaner than when we entered. Imagine what that, what that means. You're on the, on the big scale if we were to apply that to... Kind of as a basic, kind of a basic goal or something for, for our, our occupation, our human occupation of our environments, and of our of our world. It certainly doesn't go in a bad way. It shouldn't go in a bad way. So it's like some of the very kind of very nitty gritty stuff in there when you start looking at. At, at the meaning and, and spreading it out and 
link home. Is it valid still or not? What do you think? Uh, there's one, uh, one other very small analogy that I was thinking of, and um, that one also is originally uh, originally taught from monastics, but certainly not only from monastics. And uh, this one comes from the Dhammapada. Are, are many of you familiar with the Dhammapada? And now Gil Fransdale has this very wonderful new translation of it. Um, um, beloved Buddhist text for a very long time now. We're actually studying it here. It's yes, studying it here. Going through. Ah. Yeah, each month we take a chapter. I see. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Well, what good luck for me for this. <laughs> um, tell me if you've come to this one yet. Um, I'm not remembering the chapter, but this is about um, uh, the advice to to be like the honeybee. Have you studied this one? Hmm. So, mm. so this one says to, to be to be like the honeybee. So the honeybee goes in and uh, without damaging the color or texture or fragrance of the flower, to come in and extract the the nectar, and then uh, to come out again without without any kind of damaging or harming. Also, not to get entranced. Yes, intoxicated. Remember what we came for. Yes, <laughs> um, and to come back out, and then to take that, and and to keep that, and to keep it well, and use that for our nourishment and for our support. And the honeybees, then, it's not only for themselves, but it's for their whole community, right? And when they do that, what happens when they go flower to flower, as you may know, is it, it's not an end game means when they do that, uh, they're actually, is it pollinizing? Pollinating. Yes? Pollinating. Pollinating, not pollinizing. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're pollinating. <laughs> Pollinasticating. <laughs> uh, they're, uh, they're pollinating the other flowers, right? And, uh, and, and that causes the flowers to be able to continue to produce the nectar that nourishes the honeybees, right? So how's that for a kind of Buddhist, you know, basic, kind of basic symbol for living in the world? The things, the things of the world. You know, sight, sounds, smells, tastes, physical sensations, all of the, the things that their appearances. It's not talking about starving ourselves, yeah? No. No, not at all. So I found this one also very, very useful, useful to contemplate. And um, maybe for some people more pleasant than the outhouse analogy. <laughs> Although I think that one, and to look at that one straight on, like in the first noble truth, and see a lot of wasting going on. Um, to, to really, really look at that one straight on is also very, very, very important, very, very helpful, beneficial. So I wanted to leave you then with this one teaching from the Dhamma and one from the Vinaya. And the Buddha himself, actually, he, he often spoke about, he didn't speak about Buddhism or Buddhism being a religion or philosophy or any of that, but he spoke about it as being Dhamma Vinaya and uh, those, those two words together. And uh, the Vinaya, in this case, is what puts the Dhamma into life, puts it into practice. It's the real practical manifestation of it. Yes. So sometimes translated as discipline, basically means right effort. Um, with mindfulness at the center, mindfulness to the fore. Um, so, one small teaching from, from the Dhamma and one from the Vinaya together. Um, people had asked, you know, what is there in Buddhist teaching that, that relates to this subject? What then would be the Buddhist... What did the Buddha teach about that? What, what is his idea of how, practically, on a mundane and super-mundane level, we talk about the mundane here, and then also very, very deep and transcendental teaching, like there, beyond, and back again. Yes, so making kind of whole circle. 
What did the Buddha teach? What was his vision and his idea about this? Um, the, the idea and also the practicals. So I wanted to leave you with, with that, with those two, uh, two small teachings, images from the Dhamma and Vinaya. So from what I've heard you say, um, particularly in Buddhist practice, but also yes. Christian practice, that it, there, I didn't hear any teaching that would be harmful to the earth, but rather how a teaching could be misunderstood or misapplied. I don't know so well about Christian doctrine, but for the Buddhist teaching, yes, that's why I said it. I thought it's a, it's a hard task. We have to look at misunderstandings. <laughs> but then that's what we love to do also for... <laughs> I mean, for Buddhist practice, it's not the, the understanding. We don't, just as a kind of basic idea, we don't think it's the right understanding or the wisdom that's causing the suffering, that's causing the imbalance. It's the misunderstanding. So, yes, we, can, we would even, even assume that if there's an imbalance, that there's a misunderstanding underlying it. And that clearing that up and writing that would, would be essential, would be fundamental in in clearing up the, writing the imbalance. <clears throat> Isn't it a problem when you look at the questions that they pose is that it's from the Western dualistic thinking mm. and that that immediately or pretty much gets rejected, that dualistic thinking, in the sense that in the Buddhist tradition, any action could have some bad as well as some good. Mm. And that that it really is a combination, as, as you have eloquently stated, of intention and how you react to it and the mindfulness of the action. And, and, and consequently, to look at those questions and sort of like say, what teachings are bad to the environment as opposed to good to the environment is just not part of Buddhist thinking. Everything has good and bad. Mm. And uh, it's a combination of things. And where the Western religion doctrine is much more dualistic. Things are, we've mm. gone for a whole eight years of things were good and evil. <laughs> you know, that didn't work. It's, it's really a little bit of both in everything that you do. You know, so... I, well, the I, Buddhist teaching on this particular subject is actually, uh, I think there's, um, as with so many things, there's, there's this great, uh, tremendous spectrum. So the Buddha said that there is, uh, that there is black karma, that is, things that are, are, are harmful and it's hard to find any benefit in them. Really, truly. And, and also like white karma, that, uh, that there are things that are just, just plain good and it's hard to find any detriment in them anywhere. And then there's this whole spectrum in between. And we, we commonly say that, like black, white, and all shades of gray, right? So the Buddhist teaching is very much, very much acknowledging that and just saying, take, take a look at what's going on. And yes, all the stuff in between there is mixed, right? And then you want to look how, how much is it mixed? Is it, is it like the, the benefit in it does, it, does it outweigh the detriment or not? And always tend towards what has as little detriment and as much benefit as possible. And if you can get to the point of eliminating the detriment, there are things that really, really it's hard to find the detriment in. You know, a, a well-spoken, beneficial, timely, word spoken with loving kindness right person right place right time it there are many things that it's really hard to find hard to find anything that's really bad with it like you have to look really really far and even then 
maybe maybe hard to find it, yeah? And some things that it's difficult to find the light in. Yeah? It just looks <laughs> looks dark and it looks bad. And it takes sometimes real maybe maybe it's not entirely like that, but really takes a real talent, real skill to find somewhere in there. Somewhere in there that, that bit of good, that bit of benefit. And to be able to pick that up and bring that out and activate that and develop it and or transform it, yeah? Sometimes the only good in something is just, you know, that it's it's gotten so bad that you're just at the point of <laughs> at the point of being ready to uh, ready to turn over, yeah? Mm. And, um, I, I think this point you're making is very important to mm. um, highlight that there is both um, the potential for negative things that we're trying to mitigate yes. and that a key aspect of the path that is not always highlighted mm. I feel in other religions is the development of benefit and the, mm. the possibility of, of there being really truly good things mm. otherwise um, pondering these very specific details <clears throat> of life of whether I should turn on the light or flush yes. the toilet yes. it's very easy to come to the conclusion that the most green way to live is to be dead because you're not using any energy, you're not using any water, you're fertilizing the earth. You know, it, it's, this, this kind of thinking can happen. But when you start to say, oh, okay, well-spoken word, etc., I'm being extreme. But, but really, um, it is possible to, you know, every food that we eat um, yes. it had some harm at some point. Um, even if it's all vegetarian, it could have come from a farm that exploits Mexican laborers. It could have, you know, the machines that we use to till up the soil tend to kill a lot of field mice. Yes. You know, these sorts of things. And yes. so it's easy to say, okay, no more eating. <laughs> you know, and, um, but when you look at the possibility of having this, this benefit that comes with things, mm. it really changes the way to see um, the way to live a mindful and maximally environmentally beneficial life. I agree. Yes, I agree. It's true, you know, I, I learned that um, uh, that there are actually uh, lots of bees in the air that we're breathing that, that, that die just by our breathing process. Mm -hmm. that, that it is it is part that is part of, uh, of having a human body and, uh, and human life. And so that is there. Those things are there. And that's true, actually, for all forms of life. Yes. So that's the part where there is the, the kind of uh, in in the truth of change, in the truth of impermanence. There, there is the instability, just in, in things changing. Yes. There, there is that nature of instability. It's not exactly the same as kind of what sometimes people think about is nature of, of suffering and everything being pervaded by it, but there, there is that level of instability and there is the truth about uh, various, all, all kinds of forms of life, like living off of one another. Yes? There really is that. And yet, as you said, I, I appreciate how you said that, it, it's, it's easy to go in a, kind of, um, in a kind of a strange way with that, yeah? And this is where we have to really take care, is uh, how, how I'm looking at this, to know whether our point of view is, is balanced or not. Is it, is, it, is it making me negative? Is it making me apathetic? That things have their, have their various sides. Yeah? So the Buddha talked about being one-eyed blind. And I remember this very much because I'm actually near legally blind and, um, and, and a bit more blind on the left side. And so I have, I have appreciation for what it is to be kind of one-eyed blind. Um, but what, what he meant about that is how, uh, how we have the tendency to see things in extreme ways. And that is to, like we're, when we're in love, to see only the fantastic and the beautiful and the bright and the rosy and it's easy to ignore all the faults and difficulties and problems of that person and, and this kind of thing because we're in love. And, you know, but when we're angry now, <laughs> you know, we switch to the other side. And, and so you know, forget, those things don't exist anymore in that, in that moment from that point of view, right? So that's called being, being one-eyed blind and it means having, having extreme views, not, not a whole view. Yeah. 
So I know that this is something that a lot of people in this area have heard a lot about because it's kind of the whole basic basis of a holistic point of view. Is you see see the whole thing. You don't just you don't just look at one extreme or the other extreme. It means not to be not to be one eye blind and just going back and forth from one side to the other, but in the middle way, really to come to center and to see to see the whole thing. Right? There's not denying this, not denying that. Really seeing the whole thing and in a in a balanced way. A very balanced and a very uh, like very I think it's a very functional way. It's not not dysfunctional, not disempowering. Very very practical, very useful, and uh, like simply how how we can do that. And uh, when I first started studying this, I thought, oh, eightfold path. It's like too simplistic or something. Of course, our thoughts, our intentions, our speech, our actions, our livelihood—all of. All of this, of course. And over the years, um, it, it's just started to look, uh, I guess, deeper and deeper and deeper to me. And I've realized how actually those points touch absolutely everything, and how well it really, really works. You know, doing doing the things like that uh, according to what the Buddha taught. I've, I've approached it from one of like this. Oh, scientific method. Believe nothing, give it a good try, and, and try to see see what happens, see what the outcome is. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't know is it real or not? Will it really work or not? But um, it seemed like there's a chance that it might. So you give it a good try. Pali language that's called ehipasiko means come and see. It's the Buddhist kind of open door policy. Come and see, give it a try. This is for intelligent people, for those who are wise, to see and know for themselves. Yes? I have to agree with that. Insight form, too, and in my studying Mm. of the Mm. suttas and integrating into my own life, I found the biggest difficulty I had was the misunderstanding of really what true equanimity was. Mm. And that I would often teeter into total detachment, mm. but then realize, no, this this is not, mm. this is not right. Mm. So it's it's tricky to be engaged yes. without getting obsessed and yes. blinded, yes. and not falling the other way and saying, oh, screw it, it's just too overwhelming. Mm-hmm. You hit yes, that right. that balance and that equanimity. Mm-hmm. It's truly wondrous, you mm. know. But you really have to. Let go for that to. It takes arise. some working, though, doesn't it? Yeah, I found that it's not something you can make happen. You have to let everything go in order for it to happen naturally. Mm. But it's very tricky, especially when things are difficult. Mm-hmm. But that's when it's at its best. <laughs> yes, yes, right. Mm-hmm. Mm, thank you for saying that. Mm. <clears throat> yes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.